Hello, and welcome to this week's episode of A Mic on the Podium with me, Michael Seal. Before we start, I want to wish you all a Merry Christmas, and to also wish you a Happy New Year. Whilst 2020 afforded me the opportunity to speak to so many conductors and to start this podcast, it has, for the vast majority of us, been a terrible year, and one can only hope that 2021 sees a change in all of our fortunes sooner rather than later. If nothing else, I can guarantee new episodes of this podcast well into the summer and beyond. Please tell your friends and family about the podcast, and please do leave a review and rating on Apple Podcasts, as it helps the show reach a larger audience. Today, I conduct a conversation with a conductor whose career has gone from playing the clarinet in two of the world's greatest orchestras to becoming a music director or principal conductor in Sweden, Norway, the Czech Republic and his native Germany. It is a real pleasure to welcome Karl-Heinz Steffens. Karl-Heinz, it's lovely to talk to you today. How are you? I'm good. I'm on vacation. How can it be bad? (laughs) (laughs) And how has Corona and lockdown been for you? I'm thinking about, personally, I haven't looked at a single score through all of this. Um, I've sort of been divorced from conducting and music making. What's it been like for you? Yeah, it was the same. I mean, we we were sitting at home for many weeks and... um, you suddenly experience something that you never experienced before. You're not able to to do your profession, you know, to do your job. So it was not easy. But on the other hand, privately, for the family, you know, conductor. I as a conductor, you travel so much. You are away so much. I still have two pretty young boys, sons, and it was the best possible time now to spend so much time with them, with the family. It was it was actually a great time for us, privately. Mm. Well, as you just said, you're on holiday, you're on vacation in the Moselle, which is where I know that you were born and from. So can you tell me how music first came into your life um, as a child, how it first touched you and, and your first experiences with music? Look, I, I'm, I'm grown up, I'm, I was growing up here in a little village called Luxem, this is uh, in the Mosul area. And um, I grew up in with wonderful parents having nothing to do with classical music. But I grew up in the, in the, in the village band, brass band, you know, mm. um, called Musikverein. And um, so I, I started there to practice the clarinet and uh, I don't know what happened to me when I was 15 suddenly I realized that music making would be my life. And mm. uh, I started to discover classical music, everything by my own. I'm a total self-made man in a way. I studied all the stuff and so it, it started seriously. But um, everything started when I, when, I, when I started with the clarinet when I was 10, here in this little village. Yeah. Uh, and did you choose the clarinet or was it chosen for you? There was a Sunday morning where all where the, 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 the band, music band, invited all the children from the village to come to the old schoolhouse to try out some instruments because they wanted to open a children's orchestra. And uh, I was 10 and of course I wanted to play the trombone or the trumpet, something very loud. And when you are 10, you want to, you know, you want to be play something like that. But I was not able to produce one 
single note on a trumpet or on a trombone, but I was able to produce the tone on the clarinet. Mm. That was actually the reason why they put me into the clarinet. For me, at, when I was 10, it was a disaster because only girls played the clarinet. <laughs> but um, later, when I was 15, it was actually already getting much better, I have to say, with the girls. So, so it was a coincidence, I don't know, that I suddenly ended up with this instrument. And it, it made me actually happy for my life. <laughs> and then... Uh, going on, I'm assuming you went to a university or a music school and the clarinet was everything by now. This is You knew that you wanted to be a clarinetist. Yeah, I knew that from, from so let, let's say, age 15, 16, it was clear for me that I wanted to be a clarinetist. But it was a huge dream because no one in my family, no one in the surrounding here was had, had ever anything to do with a professional musician or uh, only my teacher was here in Trier in the Stadttheater in the little opera house he was clarinet player there but um, it was um, something very special that the little boy from this village wanted to be a musician um, but I, I, I finished the school I did my army service at that time in an army band and at this time I practiced already really a lot I think I started with 15, 16 to practice every day, four to five hours. And then that was actually, I was keeping that pace until I was 25 or something like this. And um, yeah, so then I studied in Stuttgart with Ulf Rodenhäuser and then the whole story began. <laughs> it's a very similar story to me. I saw a TV program when I was 15 about the London Symphony Orchestra and I realized that people were getting paid to go and travel around the world and earning money and pocket money. <laughs> and I thought, that's what I want to do. And from that moment until I got into the city of Birmingham Symphony Orchestra, that's all I wanted to do. It's sort of all other dreams of doing anything just disappeared. Yeah, it was a little bit the same with me. Also, when I was a young boy, you know, I was then 16, 17, 18, I was already teaching a little bit here in the music school, in the local music school, and I had gigs. Mm. And honestly, I was one of the richest young boys in the whole area here because I, I made uh, already then quite quite nice money in comparison to the other guys who, who had to go and harvest the rapes, you know. Uh, it was a different story. So it was actually always very nice to be a musician already in the, at that age. <laughs> mm. So at this stage, if you're studying in Stuttgart, um, you will have now been playing in orchestras. Uh, at any point so far, did you at all think about conducting? Or was it, or were you like me? I mean, I did one short year of, of, uh, of study in conducting, but it was just another degree. I wasn't thinking of being a conductor. Um, for me, it was still playing in orchestras. What was it like for you? When I honestly, I have to admit that when I, how do you say, how do, would I get to know classical music? So I, I, it came through the radio and I, I recorded it with an old tape recorder of my father. And uh, so I recorded all the Bruckner symphonies and all the stuff that actually now is so important to me. And already at this time with 16, 17, I was sitting with a tape recorder in my room and actually trying to get some scores from my pocket money or from my money I made and, and conducted the scores with the tape, you know, with the music. Mm. 
Okay. So um, I always always thought that this is the the climax of being a musician to 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 conduct because then you don't have only you don't have only your 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 instrument you have the whole the whole picture in front of you and uh, and that interest was always very interesting to me. The clarinet thing went so well. I I got the jobs. I I was successful and I married. Had suddenly two children. And then uh, I was in Frankfurt by Schoenfunk, and then it was it was quite maybe a little bit too easy. Uh, it should have been a little bit more hard. Then I would have go or get into the conducting much earlier. Say. Yeah. But um, I always wanted to conduct. It's like a football player, you know, you play while you are young and fresh. And then some of them want to become a good team manager. Uh, and uh, I'm such a guy, I think. It's, it's interesting that, uh, you know, I looked back uh, and thought, yeah, I think I always wanted to be a conductor. And I've, I've worked out that actually the violin was just a means for me to play in orchestras so that I could learn to become a conductor through playing in an orchestra. Um, it could have been the clarinet, it could have been the timpani, it could have been the trombone, but it happened to be that I could play the violin well enough to play in a professional orchestra. Um, but conducting was always there at the very back of my brain. Um, uh, because I was like, you yeah. know, I used to sit at home with my tape recorder, with my scores, thinking, how does this work? How do you conduct this? You've just mentioned that you know you went out into the profession, and uh, the two big orchestras that really jump off your CV are the Bavarian Radio Orchestra, and then of course the Berliner Philharmonica. Yeah. What were those times like playing in those two orchestras? And 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 well, for instance, who was conducting when you were at the Bavarian Radio? Who was the boss then? When I started at the Bavarian Radio, it was Colin Davis. Mm -hmm. And uh, then Colin uh, finished, and then um, Laurie Mazel came. Mm. You know, to I was never ever thought I never ever thought that I would be as good to to get into the to Bayerischer This was at that time the second German orchestra. I mean, there was always a big Philharmonica, Berliner Philharmonica, and Karajan, of course, yeah. but. But there was a second line that was also super, super important and super um, famous. That was by Rundfunk at that time with Raphael Kubelik. I played one of his last concerts and I will never, ever forget this. And then um, there was a time with Colin and uh, it made me really, it was a great time to be there. It's, it's, I think it's still, uh, or even more than it, it used to be, but world famous orchestra and was wonderful orchestra and um, it were great years in munich and then came berlin philharmonic of course that it but uh, in the munich they were not happy that i made the step to berlin of course i mean they were a little bit mm. insulted that <laughs> i i i had this idea to go to berlin but of course berlin was is the i mean for a german berlin philharmonic is 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 everything it's the dream of dream, and um, and suddenly I had the possibility, and then I went. Yeah. Well, I, I don't think it's just a, a dream for any German. I think it's a dream for most orchestral musicians. You know, to 
to get a job with the Berlin Philharmonic. So how long were you in Bavaria before you left for Berlin and what year did you arrive in Berlin? And uh, was it still carry-on when you started in Berlin? No, uh, um, I was in, in Bavarian radio from 1989 until uh, 2000. Oh. And uh, from 2000 until, until 2008, I was with the Berlin Philharmonic. And uh, when I, um, Berlin Philharmonic, I, I, I've basically played the last concerts and tours and so on of Claudio Abado. And then I basically started with Simon. It's so similar how uh, the, the timings that, you know, you probably played for Simon for about eight years. Same with me. Yeah. I played for him his last eight years in Birmingham. Uh, well, last six or seven years in Birmingham. I never got to play for Abado. And uh, I've heard that Abado rehearsals was uh, somebody described them as a sort of a mystic event that, you know, that he didn't seem to say very much, but things always got better and worked out. What were Abado rehearsals like? Because I never went to one. I played in plenty of Simon's rehearsals, but never ever played for Abado. Yeah, it is interesting that um, Claudio Abado, he never really spoke, you know, in the rehearsal. Uh, there was a beginning, and sometimes I, I turned over to my Italian colleague, Daniele Damiano, who was the first bassoon, is still the first bassoon, and I asked him, does this man actually speak a language? I mean, what, what does he say, actually? What does he speak? Um, can, you, can you have a conversation with him? Because I, he, in, in the rehearsal, the pro professional environment, he never actually, he said, maybe, yeah, clarinet, uh, Piano, maybe piano, posaune, posaune, too loud, maybe too loud. You know, you thought, what the hell? What is so famous about this man? Always when the concert, when the concert started, you realize that everything what was Claudio Abado was his his concert appearance and his concert shape. You know, the, the, he, how he shaped the music. And the, the, that was that was very special. Claudio Abbado was a concert man, a man for the evening, typical Italian <laughs> conductor. And um, so we had, I experienced great concerts with him, really amazing. And there was something, especially when he got older, and, he, and then he was suddenly very sick. And then there was this aura, a special aura, aura around him, you know, mm. um, which. Yeah, was very special. So um, it must have been quite a shock. No, of course, the orchestra chose Simon. It must have been quite a shock there to, for, to go from somebody who didn't say very much in rehearsals to Simon, who you could argue is more of a rehearsal man than an evening man. He loves rehearsing, Simon. Um, so so was, that, was that a bit of a shock, a change to the system? Or as I said, was it you knew what was coming? The, I mean, the orchestra really chose... Sam rattled very carefully. Mm -hmm. They they really they chose him deliberately, you know, they they because it's always the same. Every orchestra has for some years somebody, and then they choose exactly the opposite of this person uh, as a new one because they they, they uh, many people complain about the old one and then comes the new. It's always the new the new hero, the new prophet is coming. And then after some years 
also this gets complicated and then another one comes. So you can see the Fort Wengler, Karajan was completely different to Fort Wengler. Uh, then Claudio Abado was the exact opposite of Karajan. And then Simon was the exact opposite of Abado. And now Petrenko is actually totally different like Simon. It's so it's it's uh, I think that's what an orchestra always feels like. They need change. And Simon was of course a big change. Mm. Yeah, well uh again in Birmingham, you know, I was there at the end of Simon and Zachary was the complete opposite. Uh and then Andres was the complete opposite of Zachary and yeah, it, it, yeah. and so on and so on. I don't think it will ever change. Um, I wanted to pick your brains before we leave the Berlin Philharmonic and go into your conducting career. Obviously, the Berlin Philharmonic it plays in, in such a way uh, very much together within itself um, for all sorts of reasons, because of you know the way it's it's always been and the way that it had to be with Carrie towards the end of his life. And then you've just said with Abado, not really saying much. What was it about the players uh, and playing in that orchestra that you could take forward into being a conductor? What sort of thought processes about orchestral playing did you think, do you know what, when I stand on the podium, these are the things I'm going to concentrate on? Yeah, you know, it's, it's sometimes, uh, when I was playing in Bayerischer Rundfunk, when I, I was playing with people like Leonard Bernstein or Carlos Kleiber, um, I, I thought, oh my God, no, this is impossible. I will never ever, I want to be a conductor so desperately, but when I see these guys, how is it possible to compete with something like this? Um, and then came the Berlin Philharmonic, and of course there was the same kind of uh, calibers, you know, like Simon, like Barnboim, uh, Meta, Muti, whatever. And uh, but maybe I grew older, and the 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 inner the inner how do you say the drive was so strong that uh, even they couldn't prevent uh, <laughs> me from, from trying it out. And there was a moment, I remember, I always had the score on my desk. And I remember in an opera thing, we did Idubineo, and I had the score there and I was learning. Simon was conducting and there was some moment when I was supposed to play and I didn't because I was at the moment uh, turning the pages in my score, checking out something with the singer, what I heard there. And then Simon said, Kalle, but sorry, you have to play the clarinet now. <laughs> and uh, and then I, I went home and I thought, he's right. I mean, I, I have to decide. I have to decide. You cannot, you know, you're always are sitting in between. So came the moment to say, uh, no, I try. I will try to become a conductor. Mm. Did you stop completely playing the clarinet after that? What I mean by that is when I came to stop playing the violin in 2014, I literally stopped. I've barely played a note since. I, you know, I could have been offered extra work at the back of the CBSO or a back of other orchestras, but I decided, no, I'm going to be a conductor from this day forward and no more. Um, what did you do? Did you phase it out or did you just cut it dead? Um, I have to say I... In the in the first years, I hardly played the clarinet, and, and it went. So many things went on. I took this job in Halle, suddenly being from first clarinet of Berlin Philharmonic into a music director, music director of an opera house. So it was so much to do, so much new things, and uh, I the so clarinet was really getting dusty in the 
in the in the case. But then after some years, uh, I realized, wow, it is kind of a treasure that you are able to play an instrument, not only not good, but maybe very good or something like this, and that you are able to express things that you cannot express um, as a conductor, for especially in chamber music. So I. I started to accept a few little things here on a festival with friends and play with my wife. She's a pianist, and 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 now I think I found quite a nice balance. It's it's still maybe not enough. Sometimes the instrument stays in the case for three months, but I take it out. I have some. I do some chamber music, and I I kind of take care of it a little bit more than I used to do in the beginning of my conducting career, because it's it's actually very. Um, it's good. It's it's a very good, uh, how to say, counterpoint to the conducting. Mm. Well, I've not quite got there yet to chamber music. Um, uh, maybe if lockdown continues in the UK, I'll actually put some strings on my violin and uh, pick it back <laughs> up again. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I think you're right. I, the problem I had was that people were saying to me, if you accept work as a violinist, whilst you're trying to become a conductor, nobody will see you as taking conducting seriously, which is why I cut it dead. Uh, and it's, you know, it seemed to work and, you know, I've never looked back and I'm still, I am actually now conducting. But yeah, maybe it's time I should do some. But you see, the one who, one person who really helped me incredibly a lot was, the, it was and is still Daniel Baumbaum. And Daniel said to me, uh, 12, 13 years ago when I started the whole business and I told him, should I really take this offer in Halle and go there as a music, do you think I can make it and, and so on? And he says, you know, if you don't do it, then nobody will take you serious. Nobody takes a conductor serious that is still an orchestra musician because people and the, the, the public, they think in drawers. There's orchestra mm. music instrumentalist, soloist, conductor, you know, you have to be in the draw. If if you are in between, uh, it's not, it's, it's, um, you're always floating in between. And he says, Dan Baumbaum said about himself, he says, this is what I have to encounter my whole life. Some people say I'm a good conductor and a bad pianist and others say, uh, he should not conduct, he should only play the piano because this is what he can do. You know, all these things. And you have to, do, you have to live with that, with this kind of double talent. But um, um, so I did it in the beginning. I hardly took, uh, took even the clarinet almost out of my biography. Mm. But now it's back in. And uh, maybe the career is kind of stable and I, I, I don't care what people okay. think anyway. And... Yeah. Um, or, or, or critics think, but still, I mean, I come sometimes to the, when I conduct in Germany, the first line of the review is always, Karl-Heinz Steffen, the former principal clarinet of the Berliner Philharmonica. And you can say 50-50. Some of them say, he should have stayed at the Berliner Philharmonica, should have stayed away from the conducting. And others say, uh, they acknowledge, what I'm doing now, and they can even say something positive about it. But um, there's always this 50-50 feeling.
Um, before we get to Halle and also, and, uh, also Deutsche Staatsfolomi Rhineland Fouts, which is a very long name for an orchestra, um, <laughs> I, I wonder during your last years in Berlin as a, as a clarinetist, were you taking conducting lessons or had you had some conducting lessons beforehand? Were you conducting amateurs and youth orchestras in your spare time when you weren't playing clarinet with the Berlin Philharmonic? How was the process before the day when you said, that's it, I'm, I'm going to stop playing the clarinet? Was it always bubbling in the background? I, I started, of course, with uh, some cons, some things where I played as a soloist and did this kind of play conduct thing, you know? And then, I I start. I had a possibility. It was actually funny. I you know in 2001 there was um, I was invited by Ricardo Muti. He he formed kind of a international orchestra to play some memorial concert in New York. Um, he he there were people from Berlin, from Vienna, and so on. And so I was there playing first clarinet in Eroica. And on the way back, there was a guy from, from the Italian festival in Ravenna. He, he gave me a call. He says, Maestro, um, I, there, I have a wonderful, very good professional orchestra, freelance orchestra, but very professional uh, in it Italy. I would love you to conduct this. And I wrote back to him. I said, but how do you know that I can conduct? I mean, uh, you never saw me conduct. And he says, yeah, I watched you in this whole week now in New York, and actually I think you will be a good conductor. And then I, I went to Forli, to this place in Emilia-Romagna, for some years, every year, three, four times, in conducted repertoire, started some opera conducting, and uh, that was the beginning. And then uh, Daniel Baumbaum saw something of me, saw me conducting, and then he says, look, I think you are talented, you want to come to assist me? And then I I was running for two, three years from uh, basically from the service in the Berlin Philharmonic, from the Philharmonie to the Staatsoper to conduct the piano rehearsals of Meistersinger, and then back to the afternoon rehearsal, and then back to the Staatsoper. This is how I, so I went in. And then suddenly I got, um, I was supposed to, play as a soloist with the orchestra in Halle on a concert, festival concerts. I was supposed to play the Weber concerto, the clarinet concerto. And, and then the, at the same time, they had a huge trouble and huge fight with their old music director. Uh, then short before these concerts, the music, this music director, that was named Klaus Weise, uh, actually a good old German opera conductor, uh, he threw everything and he ran away. And then the agency called me and said, uh, we have no conductor for this concert, but we heard that you are conducting also. So can you also conduct the Schubert C major symphony and the Beethoven eight and some Meistersinger uh, excerpts or something on this festival with the orchestra and play the clarinet concerto. And I said, of course. <laughs> <laughs> And then I, 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 I really, I said yes. And um, that was like two weeks later. And I, I took the pieces. I, I knew them, of course, already very well. I, I did. And then that was quite successful. And then half a year later, I got a phone call from, from Halle that they say, now it's fixed. Our music director is gone. Do you want, and we made an, uh, a vote in the orchestra. 
do you want to be our new music director? And then I, I went to Baumbaum. Then I, I, I said, look, what shall I do? And he says, so, that's your chance. If not now, when, I, when, when do you want to do that? Mm. that you're not a young, you're not, you're not young. You're not, now all the conductors, they are 23, 24, 25. You are, I was 40. So I was, that was the time. Yeah, I did it. Well, um, it, it's a great journey that sort of was running alongside your clarinet playing life until eventually it took over. Um, yeah. uh, and you were there nine years, is that correct, as music director? I was uh, in Halle only five years. Oh, in, in Halle only five years, yeah. In Ludwigshafen, I was nine years, yes. Yeah, uh, with the with the Rhineland Fouts, yeah. Actually, when I started uh, Halle, that at the same time, the guys from Rheinland-Pfalz came to me and said, we, we are looking for a new music director, you would be the one. And, uh, and then was a little bit this, you know, this Stadtphilharmonie Rheinland-Pfalz is the, the biggest and most important orchestra here of this state, Rheinland-Pfalz, where I was born. Mm. So, and I spent my whole youth with all these people playing there and, and and uh, yeah, it was kind of a homecoming. Also good places for you to not only cover repertoire that you hadn't conducted, obviously you played it all, but also to, to discover new repertoire. And I'm assuming now you're getting guest engagements, which on this podcast, uh, two regular phrases I use, that you're going on first dates with orchestras, which is where I would have met you. I played for you when you came to Birmingham for the first time. And... Uh, and also, I, I like to call it the hamster wheel of conducting, where, you know, the hamster gets on the wheel. It loves running on the wheel, but sometimes it, it's difficult to get off. Um, yeah. So was it good to be able to come home to the Rhineland or to Halle uh, and do those jobs there and just have the odd first date at the beginning? I think it's absolutely, it was absolutely important for me because um, it's still important to have an, an orchestra for, for yourself, you know, where you can, first of all, you can conduct the repertoire, you can build up a certain repertoire with the orchestra that is really close to you. And when you have, the guest conducting is always, you have to take over everything, what they offer you, you know, what they give mm. you. And sometimes it fits and sometimes it doesn't fit. Mm. And uh, in Ludwigshafen, I was able to do a lot of, the, the, you know, I'm, I'm a, in a, if you would say, the classic German romantic conductor. V Brahms, Wagner, Bruckner. I did Bruckner cycle. I did the whole ring cycle of Wagner and all this. But at the same time, I did a lot of, a lot, a lot of 20th century, where we actually were very successful, also with the music critics. And um, so uh, kind of a wide repertoire that interests me a lot. And um, I was, I could keep myself away from Shostakovich and all this stuff where I, I still do not feel at home. Maybe I'm not Russian enough, <laughs> but, um, but uh, so when you have your own orchestra, it's great. You know exactly what you're gonna do, how you're gonna do it. You choose your repertoire. And with the guest conducting, with the, with the time you have these orchestras that you go like one time, three times, four times, five times, and then um, the orchestra starts to ask you, what would you like to conduct the next time? And then it's the moment to say, 
um, yeah, maybe we could do or whatever, piece by Zemlinski or by whatever, Bruckner or whatever. So, so it's, um, it takes time. It's, mm. it's take time. I very much admire the young guys now who are 25 conduct everything it's it's i'm 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 happy that this took some years now uh, for me to to really develop this whole process uh, i don't want to be in the how do you say how do you did you call it the the wheel the hamster wheel yes the hamster wheel is not for me hmm. well it's it's very interesting because even though the episodes might go out in a different order Yesterday, I spoke to Osmo Vanska, who also was a principal clarinet before he became a conductor. And he said almost identically to you, he was very glad that it all took a, quite a while and quite a long time for things to happen. He was glad he wasn't in a rush. He was glad that he'd done his time in orchestras, that that helped him become a better conductor. But he was very glad with the speed that it happened and it just opened, gently opened out for him. Um, it, sounds like, it sounds like you're the same and personally whilst you know when I, I stopped playing when I was uh, 44 um, yeah. but you know I at the time I wanted it all to just explode but of course it hasn't it's gradually opened it means that I've become friends with orchestras as you've said to go somewhere three four five times and then they say well Mike what would you like to do this time well I think that's much nicer than than just first dates and, and spinning around like a like a lunatic. Um, uh, absolutely, absolutely. And also it is very important you realize in the beginning you do sometimes maybe too much. You do things that you shouldn't do. You know, I sometimes, you know, you, you ask yourself, why did I get a re-invitation to this orchestra and not to the other orchestra? And uh, and you ask yourself, and yes, because on the other orchestra, besides the fact that there's always a certain chemistry important that you cannot really uh, control but but mostly it's because i conducted the wrong piece there and um, uh, so with the time you learn you learn about your repertoire and and i have to say i did now for example i mean just a simple example Brahms symphonies i did them now many 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 times and uh, Every time now, when I get back to it, I, I have the feeling it's really good that I had to conduct Brahms' first symphony maybe 25 different times uh, in order to really understand the inner process of this piece. So it, it's 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 good. It's good to do. It's it's a little bit unmodern, a little bit uh, old-fashioned, but to take time is not bad. Well, something else that takes time, uh, Carl, is. Um, opera. And as somebody who grew up playing in symphony orchestras like Bavaria and like Berlin, how did you first get into conducting operas? And how did you find the process? Because the process is a lot longer in time than the average week that you would spend with a symphony orchestra. Um, is it something you really enjoy? Well, it must be because you've, you've had a job at Norwegian National Opera and you've just started at the Prague State Opera. So it is something you enjoy. So what is it about it that you do? Look, there was always the question for me, do I want to be a conductor for symphonic repertoire or for opera, also opera? And it was very clear to me from the very first moment, um, I can only be a kind of a full-size full conductor when I do both. 
because you really, I mean, you really learn how to handle the process when you are in opera house. And not only in the rehearsal, you have to conduct Traviata 25 times in order to understand what really is going on on stage. Uh, and I remember the, the um, Marek Janowski, you know, the German conductor who is, uh, has a kind of a, a way of expressing himself, which is rather direct. <laughs> uh, and um, he, he told me in the beginning, Steffens, you want to be a conductor, you have to conduct opera. And one thing is absolutely necessary. In the opera, you have to smell the shit before it's laying on stage. And uh, uh, this is like, uh, he's, he's absolutely right. You learn anticipation, you learn to, uh, to, to understand different speeds and different time frames on stage, next to the stage, backstage, under the stage, and so on. And this is what you have to learn. But, but at the end, I have to say, I want to conduct opera because I love to work with singers. Mm. I think singing is, maybe it comes from the clarinet, maybe it comes from the wind instrument, but singing is for me very, very important. And uh, to work now with very good singers is, is really a, a blessing. So that's the reason why it turned me always into opera as well. Well, it, something's just popped into my head in the fact that with opera houses, you know, it is so different how it works. But also <clears throat> what did pop into my head was remembering when you came to us in Birmingham. And I'm, I'm just going to add this extra question in. I remember lots of us saying, oh, we really like him uh, because he feels like he's one of us, um, which, of course, you were. You were, you were an ex-player, ex uh, which almost made it OK to like the conductor um, <laughs> because you were one of us. Um, are you aware of that when you go into places or, or, or now because you've been conducting so long have you forgotten that people are like that you know I've had it said to me because I was one of them uh, oh we all one of us you know what it or what it takes you know what it how to fix things uh, how have you approached that one of us mentality that they have look I mean this is everywhere the same the orchestras they I think they understand that of course obviously I was sitting more than 20 years uh, on the same place they are sitting and I feel the dynamic of them and uh, it, I think that's very, it's very helpful it, because there is a certain border between conductor uh, and orchestra which is simply not there we are connected from the very first moment mm. but at the end the orchestra doesn't like a conductor only because he's nice or because he's one of them mm. So they, they, they conduct, they, they expect a lot. I think I expected always a lot from a conductor as a clarinet player. And I think they also expect a lot from me because I need to give them something that they can't achieve alone. Mm, absolutely. I have to, I have to, how do you say, to, to bring the forces together in order to give something like an interpretation, yeah. uh, which an orchestra of 80, 90, whatever people cannot do by the, by itself. Otherwise, it's kind of a neutral thing, you know. There are these amazing chamber orchestras. They play like a like a machine, but it, it, it's actually no 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 interpretation because it's clean and, and nothing else than that. No, the conductor has to give something special, and that's um, so. I realized that 
it really doesn't help if, if an orchestra says, oh, we like him because he's one of us. This is nice, this is good, this is helpful for the process of work, but at the end, there has to come more from the conductor than this. I agree, and, and I, that's what I'd hoped you'd say that you know, you know, you want to be booked, you want to be booked again because you are a great conductor, not because you used to be one of them. And I, that, I, yeah, and, and now it's getting to the stage where people are. I, I hear it less and less and less as my career has gone on and on, and I'm sure it's the same for you now that you know people you're being booked as a conductor, and, that, and that's as it should be. Um, no, I completely agree with you. So I'm so so glad you said that. I have one other question before we do the 10 questions, and it's a question I've asked every conductor um, because conductors and students and conducting geeks find it interesting. When you have a new score or a new piece or a piece that you haven't done for 15 years, how do you go about learning it? Do you have a process? You do you start at page one and work your way through or differently? And do you write in with black, red, blue, orange, yellow pencils, or do you keep your scores completely clean? I I have two colors, red and blue. And um, I mark things that I think are very important for the process. Um, especially when I study a score, it's full of marks. At the end, when the, when the process is finished of preparation, um, I, I could also... Uh, Take another score, you know. Take a blank score. This is not so important anymore for the for the moment of the concert or the performance. But uh, I need to put all my thoughts and ideas and and uh, think, yeah, into the score. But um, I need to be able to read the score. You know, you know what I mean. Mm. To to read the structure, the timing, the phrasing. Have to analyze the piece in a way, from in my way, uh, and mostly when the piece is uh, the score is worked out like this at the end, I can I know it by heart. Mm. For example, I, I I do this big the, the big repertoire, symphonic repertoire, always without score because I don't need it anymore. When I'm able to read a Bruckner Nine symphony. Uh, and I read the score really for months carefully, uh, then I, I know the piece simply. I, I know how it goes. And then I don't need it. I mean, in the opera, it's different. I would mm. never conduct an opera by heart. Uh, only some geniuses can do that, but I can't because I feel that in the opera every night, millions of disasters happen and I have to be able to react to them. Mm. Yeah, very wise. I've, I've done two or three operas and I'm like, no, there's no way. Um, it's that old thing of they you know, never work with children and animals. Uh, and it's much, much the same <laughs> with opera. <you> know? <laughs> never work with opera singers, scene, scene changes, lighting people. Yeah, it's anything can go wrong. Uh, that's a brilliant answer. Carly, it is 10 question time. And I will start at the very beginning, which is what sound or noise do you love and what sound or noise do you hate? 
when I was now on Corona, uh, Corona vacation, let's say, it was the springtime, and I have to say the 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 sound of a walk in a in a forest in springtime in the early evening, like at four or five o'clock, is was for me every day. It was like a medicine. It, it's it's an amazing sound, and uh, yeah, I thought of Messiaen and of, of all composers together, and uh, yeah, wonderful. What I hate is techno music. <laughs> because I think if you send me to hell, I imagine hell to be techno music without end. So yeah, I'm sorry. Uh, I have to tell you an amusing story because I, I have much the same. I cannot stand techno music. I was once staying well, with my wife in a hotel in Epinay in France, where Champagne is from, when we were the, visiting the Champagne vineyards just for a weekend. And we were in a very noisy hotel, and our room was directly above the bar. And we were just oh, yeah. just going to sleep at about 2 a.m. when somebody screamed through a microphone, techno! And then for the next hour, we, it was exactly as you've just described. The room was shaking and bouncing. And um, yeah, it's hell. hell. If you had 24 hours free, what would you spend it doing? Honestly, right now, I have to say 24 hours to spend them with my, first of all, with the family, especially with my two sons. The younger sons. I have four children, but the daughters are already grown up. They have already their own children. Uh, but the boys are eight and fourteen, and to spend time with them uh, is is just amazing. It makes me feel old because I have to play football with them, and after that, all my bones hurt. But it's the best time I can have. Who would be a favorite conductor of yesteryear? I have to say, it will be Fort Wengler. Uh, and, and any reason for Fort Wengler, or you, it just happens to be your your favorite? That just, doesn't have to be a reason. <laughs> no, but but uh, when I listen to recordings, uh, it's the only thing we have. Not all of them. Some of them I don't agree. Especially in Bruckner, I never agreed with him because uh, I think it's too crazy. Hmm. But um, he he makes the music really come out of itself it's a you know to to shape to shape something that is not 100 percent clear to give it a, a, a dimension in time this was unbelievable with Fort Wengler. you can criticize millions of things about him but uh, he was for me it's, it's the, the genius among the conductors brilliant answer and who would be a favorite current conductor or conductors? Current conductors. Um, I always used to say Carlos Kleiber, but Carlos is dead now. And uh, current conductor, I have the closest contact to Daniel Baumboim, who still is for me one of the last real geniuses uh, of music that is still alive. And, uh, pretty well alive a lot much alive and uh, um yeah i would say this is for me to spend also with him half an hour discussing about a score or discussing about music and we 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 get together a lot and we discuss he's the most open person in you know welcoming person for people like me to sit together 
smoke cigar and this and, and chat about Beethoven is just unbelievable. And uh, for me, he's he's the one. What is the hardest work you have ever conducted? I tell you something. I think for me, the most difficult work to conduct. If you and, and I think I never ever reached a version that really would satisfy me is uh, Prelude à la Prévidie d'Enfant from Claude Debussy. Because this is music, first of all, that is so away from every, you know, it's a complicated score, it, but it sounds totally uncomplicated. It sounds totally natural, but you have to conduct everything very clear, otherwise the orchestra gets completely lost. And, uh, but when you conduct very clear, then you go against the music. So it's like a, you are in between these two chairs and it's not easy. And I never ever was satisfied with what I heard and, uh, and also with what I did. Um, maybe this will come one day, I hope. But you're so right. I mean, it's a piece where time seems to just, time doesn't exist. But, yeah. but you're often conducting 12 very small beats in a bar, which makes it look yeah. like time is incredibly existing because it looks like yeah. you're being a, a little metronome. But if you don't conduct in 12 or at least subdivide very clearly, as you say, it's very difficult for the players. Yeah, you're right. It's a tough piece. The wonderful thing about that question is that I think you're the 43rd person I've interviewed. And other than one piece that's cropped up three times, everybody is given a different answer which is brilliant. I'm loving that. Number seven, when traveling abroad to conduct, what item could you not leave home without? My little humidor with Cuban cigars. Brilliant. Because uh, I love to smoke them, especially in the evenings after rehearsals. It's getting more and more difficult and it's even inappropriate uh, to, to, to talk about it because now, you know, what, you want to smoke cigars? So people look at you as if a murderer or somebody. <laughs> but, um, and there, uh, there is not even, you know, there used to be wonderful cigar lounges, uh, lounges and so on, but this is uh, less and less and less and less. So it's really difficult, but it's the best possible way after work to sit even with a friend or colleague and chat about music, drink a glass and smoke a nice cigar and this is what I never leave at home. Well, uh, I'm sure by now most of my listeners will know that I do smoke because they can hear it in my voice. Um, and yeah, I agree. There's a it's something lovely about a Cuban cigar. I have a small humidor box of them downstairs, which are not looked after anything like as well as they should be. Um, but yeah, it's a lovely way to relax. Um, I'm with you on that one. What is the one thing you would change about being a conductor? Very personal, I tell you exactly. I wish I had a talent to compose mm. music, um, which I obviously don't have. And, uh, and I always think that, that conductors in the past, so good composers, were also better conductors. Uh, the understanding for a composition is... Um, is, is is very important and i think it, it's easier to 
to to understand something when you are when you are a creative person by yourself. This is something I really regret that God didn't give me the gift for composing. What profession other than your own would you like to attempt? If I would not have become a musician, I would have become an archaeologist because that was. You know, I'm coming from Trier. Trier is the old Roman city. Uh, you find, whenever you dig in your garden, you find old uh, parts from amphoras or whatever. And um, I grew up with that. And uh, I always thought to discover a tomb in an Egyptian pyramid would be the dream of my life. If not, the much higher dream would be to conduct the ultimate version of a Bruckner symphony. But, uh, but uh, yeah, archaeologist. If the world were to end tonight, what would be your choice of final food and drink? Oh, also, first of all, a glass of excellent Riesling from the Mosel, from my home, because this is the taste of my whole existence, you know. And with it, ah, what would I eat? Definitely something from the grill. A nice entrecote from the grill with simple potatoes and some salad. Very simple. Riesling. And then Donald Trump can finish everything if he wants. <laughs> well, hopefully after you finish that and before Donald Trump finishes it all off, we might sit with a cigar and a brandy and talk yeah. long into the night. And, and when all of this is over... Karl Hans, I, that's what I wish to do one day. Uh, I'd love to thank you for the last hour. It's been really good fun. And as I said, one day I'm going to catch up with you and we'll sit and have that cigar. Absolutely. A Mic on the Podium was devised and produced by Michael Seal with music by Ben Dawson. Next time, I chat to an English conductor who has held title positions in both Germany and the Netherlands and is due to start as chief conductor of the Finnish Radio Symphony Orchestra in 2021. He is arguably best known for conducting the Aurora Orchestra since its foundation in 2004. Until then, bye-bye! <laughs>